0: everyone, this is Regina. So glad you could join us today. We want you to know that we record live on Clubhouse every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Let's get into our discussion today.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gracing us with the opportunity to serve you and uh, for the platform you have created for your good and your will, I ask to bless today's uh, events and uh, engagement with our listening audience. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. I thought you were going to go on there for a little bit longer. <laughs> you caught me off <laughs> guard. No problem. I was like texting something like, oh my gosh, he's ending.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, uh,
0: I'm okay. not quite Kojic yet, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Mm. Um, all right. So we are going to talk about Saul Alinsky today. And as I was doing a little reading on it, I found a really good article, which I'm going to pin here or put in the chats in our room. So anybody that's um, listening or following along at some later point, they will be able to. I'm gonna post two things in the chats. So first, I'm gonna put that article in there, and then there's um. How do you say his name, Tocqueville? Tocqueville.
1: I think, I think Tocqueville.
0: Okay, there's something on him that um, I want us. Uh, hold on, that I want us to to listen. I'm trying to get the um, how to share. Oh, here we go. I want to copy that link. all right we are going to listen to this seven minute video on Tocqueville I think it's really important that we do that because it kind of really helps set the foundation for how we go into Alinsky so we're going to listen to the seven minute clip and then we are going to, I'm going to read some things, um, read like two paragraphs from from uh, Kevin's book and then we're going to get into Alinsky. So I'm just setting the stage for a few things and then we're going to jump both feet, eyes wide open, <laughs> into uh, Alinsky. set this up here. and Hopefully you can hear that. Tell me if you can.
2: Such a long, arduous and heroic struggle, that it can feel embarrassing, even shameful, to be pretty disappointed by it. Perhaps the best guide to such feelings and to modern democracy in general is a 19th century French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville. For de Tocqueville, democracy was a highly exotic and new political option. He'd been born in 1805, when Napoleon was the populist dictator of half of Europe. But he presciently believed that democracy was going to be the future all over the world. And so he wanted to know what would that be like? To find out, he set out to America with a grant from the French government. He arrived in New York together with his friend Gustave de Beaumont in May of 1831 and then embarked on a nine-month journey around the new nation. After his journey he compiled his thoughts into one of the greatest works of political philosophy, Democracy in America, published in 1835. In the book de Tocqueville was particularly alive to the problematic and darker sides of democracy. Five issues struck him in particular. In France, the society that de Tocqueville knew from childhood, making money didn't appear at the forefront of people's minds. The poor had almost no chance of acquiring wealth and the tiny upper stratum of landed aristocrats didn't need to make any more money. As a result, for very different reasons, money was not the way to judge a life. However, the Americans that de Tocqueville met on his journey believed constantly that through hard work, it was possible to make a fortune and that to do so, entirely admirable and right. Money seemed to be quite simply the only achievement that Americans respected. For example, de Tocqueville observed that in America, people believed that a book that did not sell well just couldn't be any good because the only test of goodness for any item was how much money it happens to make. Democracy and capitalism had thus created a seemingly equitable but also very flat and oppressive way for humans to judge each other.
0: Democracy race, envy, <coughs> Chapter and of Shame. Democracy
2: in America, entitled Why the Americans Are Often So Restless in the Midst of Their Prosperity, De Tocqueville sketched an enduring analysis of the relationship between high expectations and dissatisfaction, between political equality and envy. He wrote, When all the prerogatives of birth and fortune have been abolished, when every profession is open to everyone. An ambitious man may think it is easy to launch himself on a great career and feel that he has been called to no common destiny. But this is a delusion which experience quickly corrects. When inequality is the general rule in society, the greatest inequalities attract no attention. But when everything is more or less level, the slightest variation is noticed. That is the reason for the strange melancholy, often haunting inhabitants of democracies in the midst of abundance and of that disgust with life, sometimes gripping them even in calm and easy circumstances. The old rigid hierarchical European system that had denied all hope of social movement to the poor was unjust in a thousand all too obvious ways to Tocqueville recognized, but it had offered those on the lower rungs one notable freedom, the freedom not to have to take the achievements of quite so many people in society as reference points and then find themselves severely wanting in status and importance as a result. Number
0: three, the tyranny of the majority. Typically,
2: we think of democracy as being the opposite of tyranny, but de Tocqueville noticed that democracy could easily create its own specialized type of tyranny, that of the majority. Democratic culture, he thought, often ends up demonizing any assertion of difference and especially cultural superiority even though such attitudes might be connected with real merit. In a tyranny of the majority, a society has an aggressive leveling instinct. It's regarded as a civic virtue to take on anyone who seems to be getting above themselves and to cut them viciously down to
0: size. Number four, democracy turns us against
2: authority. The was disturbed by the way in which in the United States, people of no distinction refused to think that anyone could be better than them just because they had, say, trained to be a doctor for seven years or studied the law for two decades or written some very good books. A healthy and admirable reluctance to defer to people too easily encouraged an unhelpful refusal to accept any kind of submission at all. And yet, as de Tocqueville saw it, it simply must be the case that some people in society are wiser, more intelligent, kinder, or more mature than others and therefore should be listened to with special attention. Democracy was, de Tocqueville thought, fatally biased towards mediocrity.
0: Number five, democracy undermines freedom of mind. You suppose
2: that democracy would encourage citizens to have an open mind. However, de Tocqueville came to the opposite conclusion, that one could find few places with less independence of mind and true freedom of discussion than in America, trusting that their system was fair and just Americans simply gave up on critical thinking and put their faith in newspapers and so-called common sense instead. Furthermore, as this was a commercial society, Americans were very conscious of not wanting to step too far out of line with their neighbours, who might also be customers. It was better to trot out clichés than to try to be original, and never more so than when there was something to sell. Although de Tocqueville says a lot of really quite grim things about democracy, and America. Tocqueville wasn't anti-democratic or anti-American. He was just trying to show why living in a democracy could, in some key ways, be really quite annoying and frustrating. He is teaching us the stoic lesson that certain pains just need to be expected. Don't be too surprised or shocked. Don't come along with the wrong expectations. Politics in a democracy is going to be pretty awful in some major ways. It's not that we're doing anything specifically wrong. It's just the price you pay and should be willing to pay when you give ultimate authority to everyone.
0: Okay, I thought that was interesting. Either one of you guys have comment?
3: Yeah, Um, so I mean, I didn't catch all of that. There was some, uh, some of the volume was not loud enough, but I think uh, one thing we have to understand is the uh, tokel was talking about specifically a democracy, and technically we're not a democracy; we're in fact um, a republic, right? And so the difference between a democracy and a republic is, and a demo- in fact, the founding fathers were very afraid of democracy; they called them mobocracy. So it's interesting. I have to go back and look at the Tokol and see if he understood the difference. Because the problem with a democracy is because the masses rule, right? It's 50 um, percent. If 50 percent in, in one vote are decide to take all the belongings of the other 49 percent, then in a democracy, you could do that. Right? So the difference is that we are a republic. In fact, the founding father said that <clears throat> there has been no democracy that didn't kill itself or waste itself or destroy itself. In the history of, of the world. So we are a republic. And the difference between a republic and a democracy are is significant. One is a republic is a system based on a rule of law. And the top rule of law is the natural law. So if you don't have that, so the and that's in our case, we have the Declaration of Independence that talks about the natural law. You know, the god laws of nature, nature's God. So that's the top rule. You can't ever violate that. So that's number one. The second thing is um, then you have a constitution, which is the second law, it's a, and then you have the lesser laws, which is what the representatives make. So the representative, so where we differ mostly from a democracy is that in a democracy, everybody votes for something. In a republic, we have representatives who vote for something that we want. And the key is in a republic, the conscience of the representative has to be supreme. So in other words, if you go to a representative and say, hey, 51% of us want to take all the Jews and kill them, the representative, based on his conscience, is required to say, no, that's evil, and I am not going to vote for that. I'm not going to let that happen. My conscience is the last line. Uh, The whole idea of the buck stops here. So it doesn't matter what the masses want. It matters what my conscience dictates. And if you don't want me to go by my conscience, you'll have to you know, elect me, recall me, whatever, unelect me, recall me, whatever. But the whole idea is that there was that last stand between um, a mob and and uh, rational thinking.
0: So just thought I'd heard that No, that's really helpful because even I completely forgot that we don't have a democracy. I'm like, oh, look at what he's saying about our country. A lot of it is true though you know, when he was, he was talking about um, the tyranny in democracy yeah. and that's that idea of the mob rule. Exactly. Right. Um, and when he was, the first point he was making, cause I, if you watch the video, you see it, it gives little titles. It was, he was saying that um, democracy is steeped in materialism. And the the difference that he noted from being in America to where he was is that money didn't really make that big of a difference there because the rich were so rich, they didn't need any more. And the poor were never going to get out of being poverty. So there were other things to them that were a standard of, if you're a good person, what's a quality life. Whereas when he came over here, you know, we have this big open frontier and we're gonna, you know, search for gold and we're going to build our own cities. And you know, so, over here, we're so thinking about, you know, how we can make more money and build bigger cities and build bigger places, right? That was the thing out west, the frontier, go conquer. I mean, that's why we, many people came here. So I thought it was interesting how he, um, was saying that as a country, we were steeped in materialism and that's, you know, a couple hundred years ago, which I think we would agree that we are. Um, so I thought reading about Tocqueville would be interesting because Tocqueville influenced Alinsky. Um, and that's, that's that second, uh, document that I have, uh, which is the, the open culture article on the ruse for Adlinsky. Well, I get that. Lonnie, do you have anything you want to share?
1: I just wanted to add that um, what I felt that uh, Tocqueville did not consider as you factored in uh, what Neil mentioned, which is the natural law, which is what I call the God Quotient. If you factor in uh, that we are a republic and not a democracy, Um, as a republic, the uh, the God factors factored in a natural law. So all things relate back to um, our, our truest origins and the laws that were set forth for us by our creator. When you factor that in, then America as a nation and its goals and, and its mannerisms, um, excluding its, its um, when it missteps, are, are steeped in uh, following that pattern, which is why, and, and Neil's great with these numbers, uh, Mentioning that America was the most giving nation uh, in the history of the modern world, if not the, the world in general, in terms of it's, if it's giving and so forth, in addition to it's um, looking to to accomplish goals and acquiring and building. And, and we're a nation of builders and innovators, um, in addition um, to the other attributes that are uh, aspired to uh, uh, being an American, and which is why everybody wants to come here.
3: Thank you. So there's a concept in engineering, which is called the feedback loop. And if you design something properly, you always want to consider the feedback loop in your design. For instance, uh, we see this every day in our house. Let's say you use too much power in your house, the circuit would pop, right? Because it's it's a protecting the system. It's a feedback loop. And if you um, if you now in a, in a in a circuit like your phone, let's say your phone gets too hot, your phone gets so hot it turns itself off. But then as soon as it cools down, there's a circuit in there that reconnects because it's based on heat. So when the heat's high, it disconnects. When the heat goes low, it reconnects, and then your phone starts working again, right? So this is a natural feedback loop, and it regulates things. It actually fixes things that way. We see that we actually have that. You know, everybody's worried about global warming. We see that God has designed the feedback loop in uh, the self-regulating feedback loop in the thing. When um, when there's more CO2 in the air, guess what? Plants grow, and you get a lot more plants, and that what that absorbs the CO2, and it it's a feedback loop that. Is designed to self-regulate, and it's a beautiful thing. So the capitalism, where I'm going with this, is quite of The capitalist system is actually a feedback loop. Right? If some if a product is good, you get more people buying it. But then as soon as more people buy it, other people say, hey, I can make a better product. And so they make a better product because they want to compete against the people who, who were buying the first product, and that improves the product. And when that improves the product, everybody now moves to that new product. And it's interesting is that you also then become concerned about your buyers because if you're in a capitalist system and our free market system your buyers are your source of income the source of wealth the source of comfort for you so you want to make them healthy what's interesting is in vietnam when the vietnamese government allowed small industries small capitalist systems small grocery stores and all that the health of everybody went increased amazingly why because now the grocer was worried about you. Uh, coming back and being his customer. Before, the government gave you a pay whether you had a customer or not. So you don't care if they bought poison food or poison whatever. So whatever the government gave you, you just distributed it. But now you have your own business. You want that customer coming back. If that customer doesn't come back, you lose your business. You want your customer to be healthy. So you're going to make sure that you give him healthy stuff. And this is the kind of feedback loop that capitalism breeds and it's self regulating
1: That's a great point, Neil. I was just thinking of um, same things taking place in Cuba, which has been teetering on the edge of economic collapse, except when um, uh, the Cuban government began to relax some of the uh, uh, stringent regulations they had on the populace and allow the populace to create a uh, uh, a form of capitalism, at least um, under the under the radar, that allowed them to. You know buy and sell and do the different things that would generate um, innovation and uh, commerce um, that uh, help to keep the people fed because uh, the government just could not and cannot consistently feed the people
0: this is good so i'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from that article that i pinned above about Sololinsky. And then we're going to go to Kevin's book. And so all of this is just to kind of lay some open perspectives. Um, and we're not scared of anything that would come at us to seem to oppose what we say. I think we welcome it and I'm not trying, obviously my team knows I'm not trying to debate with them. Um, but I think it's healthy to, to hear this perspective. And then when we get into talking about Alinsky and, and, um, his 13 rules for radicals, we'll have like, uh, just a few other chairs at the table, if you will. Okay. Um, so Saul Alinsky died 36 years. This is not Kevin's book. This is from um, that article that I pinned, um, from a site called open culture. And it says, Saul Alinsky's 13 tried and true rules for creating meaningful social change. Okay, this is what I'm reading from right now. Saul Alinsky died 36 years before the election of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's first attempt for the presidency. But many feverish screeds on social media, talk radio, and YouTube might have made one think that he lurked behind these politicians like Rasputin, spoken of by many on the right as a servant of the devil, (laughs) Uh, the American Joseph Goebbels, and dangerous harbinger of insurrection. Alinsky developed a reputation for insidiousness that may exceed his influence, considerable though it may be. But liberals and leftists have no special purchase on Alinsky's legacy. As one thoughtful, eloquent pundit recently wrote, the right has taken Solinsky's rules for radicals and shoved it up where the resistance don't shine. Not long before this charming appropriation, Alinsky's 1971 manual of political warfare Found its way into the hands of some of the same Tea Party organizers. Wow, Tea Party, we haven't heard that name in a while. (laughs) The same Tea Party organizers who had made his name synonymous with everything they despised about the left. But Alinsky wrote rules for radicals for his demographic. From the 30s to the 70s, he organized poor working people in Chicago and other cities and addressed counterculture and civil rights activists nationwide. The opening paragraph of the book makes it perfectly clear who his readers are. What follows, this is a quote from the book, what follows is for those who want to change the world from what it is to what they believe it should be. The Prince was written by Machiavelli for the haves and how to hold power. Rules for Radicals is written for the have nots and how to take it away. Alinsky's reference to Machiavelli sets readers up for a high degree of ruthlessness and real politic, and the book does not disappoint. If you're looking for an anarchist cookbook level radicalism, you'd best look elsewhere. While Atlinsky talked tough in an honest Chicago way, he did not recommend violence in his manual. In the prologue, he denounces parts of the far left who have gone so far in the political circle that they are now all but indistinguishable from the extreme right. In recent revolutionary violence, he writes, we are dealing with people who are merely hiding psychosis, psychosis behind a political mask. Rules for Radicals recommends mostly working within the system, though in the twisted way, Machiavelli is reputed to have done whether or not he's been interpreted fairly. Below you'll find Alinsky's list of 13 Rules for Radicals offered with his proviso that political activism cannot be a self-serving enterprise. People cannot be free unless they are willing to sacrifice some of their interest to guarantee the freedom of others. The price of democracy is the ongoing pursuit of common good by all of the people." Okay, we're going to get into Kevin's book. Anyone have a comment on what this guy says?
3: A huge comment. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) go ahead, Neil.
3: One of the problems is that um, he has mistaken and misunderstood um, what civilization is. His whole thing is in civilization, you're forced to give up certain things for the good of other people, and that is actual nonsense. The reality is you're not forced to give up anything that you didn't already not have. For instance, I was talking to, uh, I think I have mentioned this before, I was talking to a, a kid once and he said, well, I'm, I've been told to write a report and the report has to talk about all the rights we have to give up so we can live, live in a civilized society. And I said, what kind of rights do you have to give up to live in a civilized society? So well, I have to give up the right to kill somebody, I have to give up the right to steal. I said, you never had that right. God never gave you that right. All rights come from God. He never gave you the right to steal or kill. So you're not giving anything up. You had, you are respecting the rights of other people, just like you're respecting your rights, but you've never had to give up any rights. So when I live with it in a civilized society, I should live within all the rights that God has given me. And I'm not just redefining this. I'm just saying that uh, you can't go around killing, uh, <laughs> killing people, but you have all the rights to your own property. You don't have, see what the left is doing is they're saying, oh, you have to give up the right to steal and kill. Oh, and you have to give up the right to owning property. And you have to give up the right to keeping the profit from your selling of the property. See how they do that? that And so whenever somebody talks like that, you're like, no, 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 no. I didn't have to give up any rights that I didn't already not have. And I think that's a very key fact. Whenever somebody talks like that. And now as as the the rest of it, as the Tea Party using Sololinsky's techniques and methodologies, sure, yeah. But um, oh, one more thing I should mention very clearly, and I see this often. People talk about the and uh, extreme right Oh, the extreme right. This well, here's the reality when we think of extreme right, we think of Hitler, we think of Mussolini, right? We think of Saddam Hussein, we think of dictators, that's the extreme right. But did you know that there has never been an extreme right that wasn't socialistic? Every single extreme right is a socialist. Mussolini was a socialist, Hitler was a socialist. Hussein was a bad party socialist. In fact, all the famous socialists uh of history, I'm sorry, all the famous uh extreme right killers of history have all been socialists. There is no extreme right. There's only a left. In fact, there is no left or right, there's only up to freedom or down to tyranny. And that's what we're talking about here. They try to make it so as if we're the right but no, none of us want fascism. Fascism, every single fascist has been a socialist. And that's their beauty. that's their their goal is socialism. And that, their goal is fascism. They're all two birds of the
0: Good stuff, Neil. What about you, Lonnie?
1: I was going to say the same thing, great stuff. Um, you know, as I look here online, and anyone can do this, and if you look up Saul Alinsky, um, there's been a lot done Within cyberspace, to clean up his image, even to uh, say that uh, his his infamous quote uh, is not a, attributed to him, but I just wanted to to point out that uh, his quote actually does uh, affirm his we well, called Satan the uh, he called Satan the original radical who gained his own freedom. Uh, so that should tell you something about his mindset as he laid out these 13 uh, uh, attributes for being a, a true radical. If you think the original radical was Satan who acquired his kingdom, as it were, I'm using his quote again, um, to, to gain his own kingdom, being, being a radical. It should say something about the mindset that um, is being largely used today um, with those on the extreme left who um, have a worldview that's different from ours. I just thought that was really interesting as I'm looking through here and there's many quotes and so forth. If you go to uh, um, any of the pages that you can search out information about uh, anyone, you'll find that his, his image has been cleaned up over the years. and I just wanted to point that out.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Anyone in our audience want to say anything? Just raise your hand. And we will gladly bring you up so that you can uh, share any thoughts or questions that you have, or you can put it in the chat. And uh, Kevin is not here. He had another appointment, but he may be joining us shortly. So uh, we're grateful just for the whole team being on standby. So now we are going to get into um, Kevin's book and here where he's coming from. And so we're going to start with it starts out as the the subtitle here on this particular section is called modern day Marxism. For many Marxism is somewhat nuanced and harder to detect in America. However, most modern day diehard Marcus, Marxists can be recognized easier under the auspices of Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky was a notorious community organizer in the 1960s and 70s. His modern day Marxist tactics are foremost in the playbook of today's woke movement. Using Karl Marx's playbook, Saul Alinsky provided a strategic blueprint for social activism in a book called Rules for Radicals in 1971. Alinsky was a notable social malcontent and devious miscreant, as his writings consistently encouraged and embraced Karl Marx's socialist communist agenda. An overwhelming majority of Marxist community organizers likely use Alinsky's playbook. He garners a huge following that persists to this very day. Moreover, even after acknowledging and dedicating his work to Lucifer, in the front pages of his book, he's been lauded by presidents and heads of state. Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are self professed Alinsky disciples. So while Alinsky was a self professed demoniac, some of the most influential people on the planet follow his blueprint as a virtual Bible for building movements and changing culture. To be sure, Alinsky's dedication page reads as follows. Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical. From all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which. The first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. End of quote. It's clear Alinsky had dark motives and allegiances with dark forces in the demonic realm. Yet again, his legacy is heralded and persists. In his book, How Evil Works, author David Koppelian wrote, Obama proclaimed, Alinsky's community organizing rules were seared into my brain. Coppelian chronicles Alinsky's work as the general public must be made to feel intimidated, upset, frustrated, and hopeless. Alinsky explains, any any revolutionary change must be preceded by a passive, affirmative, non-challenging attitude towards change among the mass of our people. They must feel so frustrated, so defeated, so lost, so fruitless in, quote, the prevailing system that they are willing to let go of the past and change the future. This acceptance is the reformation essential to any revolution, end quote. Other notable Solilinsky quotes from his book Rules for Radicals are, quote, The first step in community organizing is community disorganization. The disruption of the present organization. Excuse me, I had to sneeze there. Sorry. Back again. This is the quote. The first step in community organization is community disorganization. The disruption of the present organization is the first step. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community fan, the latent hostilities of many people, many of the people to the point of overt expression, search out controversies and issues rather than avoid them. For unless there is controversy, people are not concerned enough to act. The organization organizers first job is to create the issues or problems. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent. The organizer polarizes the issue. The organizer helps to lead his forces into conflict. The real arena is corrupt and bloody. In war, the end justifies almost any means." There is no doubt Alinsky is one of the most influential, masterful, maniacal manipulators of our time. Alinsky's synopsis perfectly underscores how his diabolically inspired strategies are used to undermine existing mindsets and alter worldviews. Since his tactics are entirely designed to precipitate agitation, resentments, and an undue emphasis on struggle, moral values and common sense should dictate his works must be wholly rejected still, alas, he's chaired as a progressive champion. In addition to Alinsky's dedicating his book to Lucifer, his entire Marxist methodology is designed to torment the base emotions of conflict and resentment to proliferate hatred. Alinsky asserts, people cannot be free unless they are willing to sacrifice some of their interests to guarantee the freedom of others. The price of democracy is the ongoing pursuit of the common good by all the people. That said, here's the list of Valenti's 13 rules for radicals. So before I read that, let's uh, digest what Kevin just said there. Who wants to go? Lonnie, Neil?
1: Just to reiterate uh, what Kevin's outlined um, here, um, its a methodology um, that Kevin's um, laying out as it relates to those uh, 13 points and uh, the methodology is very effective if it's applied um, the way it's been outlined by um, Saul Alinsky and you see examples of it everywhere I mean the fact that um, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama um, alluded to their uh, support of uh, Saul alinsky and his rules if you will and the uh, if you look at uh, this one particular party that they're associated with and how that particular party has been carrying out these 13 points and how far along we are into this process um, you know the the, the book was uh, I say kevin's book is prophetic in that uh, he's Confirming what is already taking place and exactly where where we are headed now as a nation.
0: Neil, anything before I start with the list? No, no, nothing, nothing to add. I think uh, um, Lonnie put the nail on the
3: head there.
0: Okay. And again, I think um, what you stated when we first opened up with with Tocqueville is that we were not given a democracy. We were given a republic. And so the idea of continuing to still call a republic the democracy is obviously going to lead to misinterpretation and build a foundation that's false because we were not given a democracy. Our constitution is a republic. And so, you know, really understanding the difference, um, as you stated earlier, uh, between the democracy and the republic is going to be important because, you know, some of the things on the front may sound like, oh, yeah, you know, we should all sacrifice. I mean, that's even kind of in our in our religion has taught us that now that's not necessarily something that, uh, the Bible tells us that we have to do. We turn down and we sacrifice for ourselves, for our own growth and relationship with our creator. But there was only one person that had to really sacrifice for all of mankind. And we're not asked to do that. Uh, and so you know deception really comes in when you have a lot of truth and just a little bit of deception right yeah okay so here we go um rule number one power is not only what you have but what the enemy thinks you have power is derived from two main sources money and people have-nots must build power from flesh and blood i can see why they refer back to in in that other article machiavelli because machiavelli talks a lot from the standpoint of the have-nots and keeping power um but any comments or thoughts just even on this first statement that power is not what you have but what the enemy thinks you have
3: Yeah, I mean, this is, you have have to give a lens. I mean, if you look through these rules, they're all extremely, um, I I don't want to say devious, but but they are devious, but they're also extremely true because when you're dealing with, uh, I mean, as you go through it, you'll see there's some key insights here that he has gleaned. And it's, it's to our uh, detriment that we have not been looking at what he's, you know, you're coming back to Machiavelli uh, and, but even if you go off to the art of war by, you know, the Chinese philosopher or the warrior, uh, you you realize that there are a lot of key insights that um, you can gain even from the opponent, right? You know, one of the art of war is like, and know know your friends well but know your enemies better, right? So to our detriment, we've not been studying them. I mean I would say uh, let's put it sorry. my daughter is in the homeschool academy, right? We have two days in the academy and, and uh three days at home. Um she is studying Saul Alinsky. One of her classes is Saul Alinsky. Um why? Because it's very critical that we understand the enemy and we understand what they're doing, and in many cases using their techniques are very key. I mean we're doing that here, I, uh, we, um, we had an event and, I, and the people on the EPLM sites have, uh, I'm sorry, the, the EPLM team know this, we had an event last Monday, where two days before that, they were trying to pass this ja- transgender uh, policy in the school. Now this is a very, uh, very conservative area in Idaho, this is Nampa, sorry, Caldwell um, in Idaho, should be all conservative, but the conservatives just assumed everything was fine. But meanwhile, the school board had been taken over by liberals and they were trying to pass this transgender law where um, a 16-year-old girl could find herself taking a shower one day after PE and a 16-year-old boy walks in claiming to be a boy. I mean, claiming to be a girl just so he can watch the girls shower. And and they were like, oh, well, you know, they need a place to shower too. I'm like, yeah, make make them a custom shower if you want to, but you don't need to put our girls at. Uh, in difficulty but yet they had managed to get into our system if we had been watching them if we had been looking at this then we'd realize how to stop them and what we need to stop them so anyway uh, the, the the good part side of the story is that we put out a call on sunday for a meeting on monday and we had 919 parents and people show up and we made such a ruckus that they shut the hearing down and now of course they're going to try and uh, vote in secret but we've told them look we have. Two groups of lawyers waiting to file lawsuits against you. So that's my new saying is file uh, too early, too often. And we have um, a recall waiting to be filed as soon as anything. In fact, we're going to do the recall anyway, regardless. just the fact that they played around with it is worth a recall. It should have been no, this is never going to pass. We're not going to come to season. But again, uh, the idea there being look, you've got to be watching them because they're using this against you. They're destroying our country. So we need to be experts.
0: Great. Thank you for that ad, Neil. Point number two, never go outside the expertise of your people. It results in confusion, fear, and retreat. Feeling secure adds to the backbone of anyone. Let me read number three as well. Whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. Look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety, and uncertainty. You know, just let me read these next two, they all string together. But I, number four is make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. If the rule is that every letter gets a reply, send 30,000 letters. You can kill them with this because no one can possibly obey all their own rules. Number five, ridicule is a, is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It's irrational. It's infuriating. It also works as a key pressure point to force the enemy into concessions. And so what I think sometimes is so dangerous about this is because... Today, someone might be your enemy, but tomorrow you may really need them. I think the way we we define who is an enemy and what an enemy does is not always something that you can uh, make a determination with quickly. I mean, should you use wisdom and, and and stay away from people who seem to be causing problems? Yes, but before you mark someone as an enemy because our Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against wickedness and powers and principalities in high places. You know that scripture. And so it's not always the people. And what we perceive to be an enemy oftentimes is someone reacting out of their own fear or their own insecurities or their own need to protect, right? a wounded dog when you approach them or a wounded animal is going to fight you back. Even if you mean to help them, they perceive you as an enemy, but at this point you're not, you're trying to help. And so we can't, I don't know that there's a safe way to try to predict who's who's your enemy and not. And so why create rules and tactics to try to destroy your enemy, destroy or infuriate or crease, increase insecurity, anxiety and uncertainty. Like, tell me how that is humane. So some of my comments on uh, those two through five, Lonnie, go ahead, then Neil,
1: I was thinking, um, Regina, of um, during my time working in the technology industry and uh, um, IBM, uh, having being one of the big players back then, certainly one of the most powerful players uh, going back uh, 20 years ago or more, 30 years ago. And one of the tactics that there, I worked in sales and marketing, and one of the tactics that the IBM um, sales and marketing representatives would use is what they called FUD, Mm F-U-D, those three letters. And those letters represented fear, uncertainty and doubt. And so all an IBM representative had to do was create that with the potential client. If let's say in the company I was with was a competitor to IBM was create FUD and if they created enough fear, uncertainty and doubt in the prospective client's view of your organization, that client would not pick your organization, they would go with the platform that they felt comfortable with, that they felt secure with. And so IBM was very effective at utilizing FUD. And so once I learned that, I started to use that particular tactic in my competing against IBM based upon uh, known frailties that I knew they had or that I could stir up. And so I think that's what uh, number three points to it says whenever possible go outside the expertise of the enemy look for ways to increase insecurity, anxiety and um, Uncertainty it's a very effective tool. And so Saul Alinsky um, I, I think it's you hit the nail on the head bill when you stated that that he was um, uh, Extremely gifted at distilling things down to the basics uh, to create these 13 points that um were used effectively by him and he's been no longer with us for some years but by those who profess a worldview different from ours which I call affectionately call the uh, the anti God crew is utilizing these tactics to create that FUD, if you will to be effective and pushing forward so that you've got to do what you've got to do with uh, with the schooling and push back so Neil what you've done with uh, your group of parents and so forth concerning uh, concerning schooling is created enough fear, uncertainty, and doubt with the school systems, or more to the point, the administrators moving forward with this ungodly plan that now they have to pump their brakes and think twice and have some fear, uncertainty, and doubt if they move forward that this would uh, be the thing to do. Because at the end of the day, uh, what those individuals are most concerned about other than their agendas their jobs. Yeah.
3: No, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we we want them to be so scared that we're going to come after them because we've got recalls going. We've got all the lawyers ready to file multiple lawsuits. We want we want even if you're like um, 100% for the LGBT, LGBTQ uh, thing where you actually don't care that boys are going to be sharing with girls. You um, you're like, well, man, I just don't want to hassle. And 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 people they've done this so effectively. In fact, when the prayer and school thing came, uh, a whole bunch of school boards just uh, capitulated because we're like, Oh, we don't want to deal with all the lawsuits we're going to get. And the ACLU is really good at that. The Green Lobby is good at that. Like they'll come after, um, we're crying out loud, um, Jesse Jackson is good at that, right? He goes to a GM and says, hey, we're going to sue you for discrimination unless you give a million dollars to the Jesse Jack Jackson Rainbow Push Fund. Of course, none of that money ever gets to the kids, but um but that's the whole thing is look, we just we don't want to mess with it, we'll just pay you to go away kind of thing. Or we'll not do something, to make sure you go away kind of thing. So it doesn't work both ways. But that's exactly it's right out of Alinsky's book, right?
0: <laughs> but do Okay, so how do you counter the the way that they're doing it, because it seems like to me, Neil, what you're saying is you do it right back to them.
3: So yeah, so what you do, is so again, remember, if you're using a tactic, that is effective and useful, that they're using, using it, there's nothing. If you go through uh Alinsky's tactics, the very few of them are inherently immoral on their own what's interesting about them is only immoral people will come up with them. Right? You know what I mean? It's like only a person who's devious would come up with these. Most Christians are like, oh, everybody's good. Everybody's happy. We should not worry about it. And then you come face to face with evil and you go, well, how did this happen? Well, they use these tactics. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I guess these tactics work. Right? There's something we should put in our toolbox kind of thing. But I mean, if you just look at the tactics on their own, um, you know, Never go outside the expertise of your people. Nothing inherently immoral about it. Um, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the enemy. I mean, you could retranslate that to be the enemy that you're attacking. It could be translating as a competitor. You know, always go outside the ex- expertise of your competitor, right? You know, so there's many of these tactics are not inherently immoral on their own. But as I said, most Christians would never come up with this. Somebody who's devious would have to come up.
0: Interesting. Okay. Anyone in our audience have anything they want to share? Any questions you want to ask? Just raise your hand and we will bring you up. We are, um, wow, it's almost five o'clock. We're going to try to get through these. uh, Let me read these other rules here. So number six, a good tactic is when your people enjoy. They'll keep doing it without urging and come back to do more. They're doing their thing and will even suggest better ones. Okay. That's a good example of there's nothing inherently wrong with that tactic, right? But (laughs) if the particular tactic that they're good at (laughs) (laughs) is violent or hurting people or, you know uh exactly. condemning then then we have a problem Yep. number seven a tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag right don't become old news nothing wrong with that number eight keep the pressure on never let up keep trying new things to keep the opposition off balance as the opposition masters one approach hit them from the flank with something new and okay So we could say, oh, I don't know. That one could be iffy, but it is, how are we, even if people of faith, how are we determined at something, right? If we face a challenge and one way doesn't work, what are we inclined to do? Try another way, right? right? And if that way doesn't work, then we're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And if they figured out how to get around that, then I'm going to do that. It's kind of like... Your child has figured out how to get out of the crib. You're like, okay, I got to fix, you know, your child is your supposed right. enemy at this point, right? They figured out how to get out. So I need to do this. They figured out how to, you know, unlock the door. So now I need to find another tactic to make sure that they don't get out the bed and unlock the door. So, yeah, that's funny. We laugh now, and at that. We
3: see that, we see that in, in the security industry, every time, you know, these people figure out a, a weakness, but so we create a. Uh, firewall that stops that, right? You know, if somebody hacks into our website and then we're like, we we'll clean it up and we learn something. We do this next time,
0: right? So, so without moral conscience, one could look at this and say, okay, this is good. But it goes back to that point you were saying is that, well, now if you, if you have something evil about it, so like if the girl turns you down, then you follow her. And if she right. doesn't want to go out on a date with you, then you send her emails. And if she blocks your email account, then you text her, you know? So, I mean, anything like, what do we say? There's nothing bad about the gun. It's a person who's, you know, the intentions of the person using the gun. There's nothing evil about a knife, right? We use it to cut and to, you know, make dinner and to- And for surgery, right? And for surgeries, but it depends on the intention of the people holding the tool, whether it's a yeah. weapon. Number nine, the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. Uh, I bet you parents can agree to how many times you threaten your child if you're going to do X, Y, and Z, which you never do. And even if you were put in a corner to do it, you probably would not. Um, but the threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself imagination and ego can dream up many more consequences than any activist the major yeah. premise of tactics is the development of operations actually let's,
3: let's go back to that number nine real briefly okay this has been really effectively used against conservatives right they'll be like oh if you do this we'll shut the government down like shut the government down <laughs> you know i don't care go ahead and do it right um in fact if anything they will show people i would like to shut the government up for six months out of the year um or they'll say you know uh if you um if you do this pe- if, you, if you announce this people will think you will think you're mean-spirited i'm like okay think i'm mean-spirited go for it i don't care i'm just gonna do what i need to do because it's the right thing to do And so conservatives have been beaten up with this Um, and and we see that in Congress all the time, you know, like the, uh, the leftists will do one thing when they're in power. And then when the conservatives get in power, they won't do that. The same thing that the leftists did, they won't do that. Oh, because that wouldn't be right. I'm like, well, it's not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of giving them a taste of their own medicine. Right. But then again, I'm yeah. the guy who would run uh, I'm I'm the guy who would run a fake liberal in a school board race to dilute their uh, the liberal
0: vote, right? I was <laughs> okay. So may, maybe Neil should not be giving us too much advice. <laughs> go ahead go ahead, Lonnie, you came off mic. Yeah,
1: I was just uh... A, a, agreeing with Neil, his his influence on me has been measurable. But no, um, no, no. Yeah, these tactics. Um, I, I was thinking of, of Miles Monroe. It, it come to mind, and he used to say that if you wanted to defeat the devil, he says all you had to do is figure out what he's doing, and then you do that. And I mean, the first time I heard it, I heard him say, "Well," I said, whoa, 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 "Whoa, what do you mean by that?" And then he reiterated, and then he explained what, he says, well, the the devil's not a creator. And that's the problem that he has with the creator. He wants to be him. And so anything that he drums up that he's doing that's effective in the world is based on something that's already been created. But all he's done is perverted it for his use. And I never forgot that. And so these tactics that are outlined, these 13 points, and with the uh, tactics of those of us who are the, uh, those that are the anti-God agenda is they are utilizing tactics and things um, that have been perverted. They pervert something that's effective to their own good. And then we, as people of faith, just have to understand something that they're using and... um, and use it back on them, but in a godly and creative way, if I can make sense there.
0: Yeah. I hear you guys, I do, but at the same point, you know, I just, and maybe this is why I wasn't always so great in the political arena, And I decided to get more involved in writing policy than actually being in the political arena. And that's one of the things that um, Machiavelli, when you read his works, what he talks about is that the idea that don't be so offended that your politicians are, you know, maniacal in their plots and their plans, or they're, you know, not walking around with angel's wings because some things to get done that you need to get done are not going to align with your pure Christian faith. And I think that's part of of our problem, right? Is that we have this pure Christian faith. And I remember first getting saved and I loved the old Testament. But when I saw that the creator was allowing nations of people to be slaughtered, I was like, oh my gosh, I just, I like, I couldn't take it. And I, I would either skip those passages or I would make justifications for it. And I think that we, we have to come to this balance of understanding what does it take to walk through life in this world and there is war and there is peace, right? There is life and there is death. And sometimes death may come at my hands to you and you deserve it. You know, and I could not. I mean, so many of the things we see in the Old Testament, you know, the creator, gave, okay, if they do that, stone them. <laughs> if your kids are disobedient, take them outside the gate and everybody stone them. Parents pick up the first stone. I mean, and it's just like, oh, I don't know how we we got to this uh, idea that as a Christian, we just don't do anything, Right. I don't know how we got there. Neil, go ahead.
3: Well, first of all, I want to say that what Lonnie said is great. Lonnie, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but that's exactly right. Um, all these tactics are just good tactics that have been corrupted in tiny ways, right? Um, but the uh, the idea that we as Christians have to be passive and follow along blindly is not given anywhere in, in the Gospels and and certainly in history, we, the Christians have always been on the forefront. They've been on the forefront of science, forefront of uh, politics. I and mean, the whole idea of the, the, uh, a nation where rights come from God was a Christian thing. It didn't come from the Hindus. It didn't come from Muslims. It didn't come from the Buddhists. Right? It didn't come from any of those. It certainly didn't come from the atheists. So uh, we can see that uh, history does not relegate them. That does not point that way. Somehow in the last hundred years, Christians have been told to be Meek and passive. Meek is okay. Meek is strength under strength, but passive and not uh, reactive. And I think that's where we, we've gone wrong. You see too many churches like that. I have to tell you a quick story. So during the COVID thing, the uh, there was a number of churches in San Jose that went along with everything that the county wanted. Um, and in a in a And we kept telling them stay open you know our church opened and we got four million dollars in fines none of which we were going to pay in fact we won every court case so far but that was go to the next court um and our lawyers stand to make a lot of money um but the other churches wouldn't open up they were going to obey all the rules and they wanted to do what the county wanted they thought it would be a good witness to other people to be shut down and instead, what happened is those churches all dwindled, and they've lost something between 30 to 40% of their membership. People just stopped going to church and aren't going anymore. They're staying at home. So who got help? Nobody got help. Everybody got hurt. And I think in a moment of candor, one of the pastors said, because they went to the county and they kept going to the supervisor meeting, trying to meet with the supervisor, saying, hey, how come Walmart can be open? How come Costco can be open? How come strip cups and alcohol shops can be open, but churches can't? And the county didn't want to talk to them. They're going to talk. And finally, the pastor said. And, and what's interesting about this is this pastor was very active. In fact, these group of churches are very active in something they call Beautiful Day, where they go out and they fix up uh, schools and they fix up um public places for free. They just go in, they bring like a thousand volunteers and they just redo schools, they fix the doors, they paint them, they just, you know, all this for free. um Which, by the way, the unions were not happy about because. Um, the labor unions were like, hey, they're taking our work away from them, from us, and so there was a big battle on that. But anyway, the point being that after doing all this stuff, the county, the pastoral, uh, the county, the, it's it's like an abusive wife uh, scenario where the county just we give and, give and give and give and give, and the county doesn't give a hoot about what we think or what what happens to us. They don't really care about it. And I and my my thought was. It took you this long to realize that evil is evil yeah
1: on point Neil on point you know he's thinking and I jotted this down, the scripture came to mind the scripture that uh ref- references we should be uh shrewd as a snake but harmless as a dove, and so we um we we must think in those terms and um, how we got to becoming the era of uh, me and some of my uh pastor cohorts would call um being like zigzag Jesus if you think back to the 60s and the uh if you know what zigzags are and the image of the individual on the cover of the packet of those things which kind of reminded looked like You know the the jesus that's typified within your uh, european culture um the looks and but i think it's apropos that uh, zigzag jesus was about well zigzags and what you did with zigzags and smoking that substance uh, but not doing anything i guess is my point and uh, we are in that era of still zigzag jesus and um christians fight and christians should fight in every segment of society uh, there's a way to fight that God ordains that we do fight, and there's a way that he had that he um uh, us to fight, but we should fight. And so to um, and and I'm familiar with the the church you mentioned. There's another one in remember in San Diego a couple of months ago we did an event there, and um, mm-hmm. a church that fights. And yep. that church yep. that fights is growing in the midst of all the other churches, and including mega churches are shrinking in size. And yet this church is growing with what six locations and so forth in san diego uh county area and growing with a huge men's ministry and why is that it's because the pastor is a fighting pastor and he knows how to fight because he understands the full gamut of his of uh of the bible and he applies the full principles in the bible and it has encouraged the congregation and the men in the congregation specifically and because the men in that congregation are so prolific Um, there's a large body of uh, women in the congregation because they know they can go there because that's where real men are.
3: Ah,
0: yeah.
1: Okay.
0: I know that church
3: well.
0: (laughs) Uh, Let me read these last three rules, um, and then we'll wrap up our thoughts here. So number 10 is the major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. It is this unceasing pressure that results in the reactions from the opposition that are essential for the success of the campaign. If you push a negative hard enough, it will push through and become a positive. Violence from the other side can win the public to your side because the public sympathizes with the underdog the price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative never let the enemy score points because you're caught without a solution to the problem number 13 pick the target freeze it personalize it and polarize it cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy go after people and not institutions people hurt faster than institutions. It's like, wow, ouch. And I see so much spiritual parallel to this because just a side note, I think sometimes this is our problem in our relationship with the Creator is that we think that he operates this way. Like this is how we operate in our world. We've seen success. This is how we've been taught to operate in our community. And so we, we, we go at God, like we keep praying until he gives us what we want, you know, or we're going to go ahead and do this. And while we're doing it and pushing through, we are just believing that he's going to bless it, you know, because we haven't stopped to talk to him. And it's not that he might not tell us to use that tactic. But the thing is, is that we use all these tactics without taking him into consultation about what is the tactic you would have us to use and if you study the wars in the old testament whenever they went out to battle and they were successful they rarely did the same thing twice even if it was the same enemy he may have told them to to fight this way or don't fight or to send the levites out first or go out with praise or just lift your hands or or walk around seven times and shout on the last time and so There's nothing wrong with tactics, right? But it is how you use them and who you consult first. And I think if we were to consult our creator first, if we were to consult the word of God first, before we implement it, he would tell us which tactics would be successful at what time and in what way. And it would not mean that we'd have to tear down another child of God to do that right? Can we destroy the works of the enemy, which is not flesh and blood? Sure. But destroying people, that's the last one about, you know, hurting people because people hurt, you know, faster than institutions. You know, sometimes people are just doing the job that they've been instructed and paid to do because it supports their family. You can't go to a social worker, you know, or, or someone and just, you know, completely rail them out because they're following the guidelines that have been given to them when it could be that the guidelines are wrong. So I know that Neil and Lonnie have a lot to say about what I just said. <laughs> so go ahead, Neil, give us your, your closing thoughts there.
3: Uh, well, uh, I'll just do a general closing thought. Uh, I think, I think it's very important for us to understand how our, know knows our friends. Keep our friends close, our enemy closer, know our friends, but know our enemies better. Um, and I think that Solzhenitsyn, now here's something that's very important. I think we should all understand. The enemy, the liberals, the progressives, the Marxists, the socialists, and, and just for the readers who, for listeners who don't know, I come from a very Marxist family. My father was a communist and a Marxist. My aunt was all Marxists. Um, they have never been shy about telling us what they plan. If you go to the 1950s, the, there was a senator who listed, I think, 50 plans that the Marxists have had and have always had. And if you look, go through them, you'll see all of them have been they've been working on them the whole time since the church has been asleep about it. So, uh, you know, they'll say, you know, infiltrate the schools, which they did, infiltrate the churches, which they're doing, infiltrate the um, the businesses, which they're doing, right? Um, you can see all that uh, being done with their critical race theory, with Marxism, socialism, making the public dependent on the government, uh, destroying marriage, dist- uh, increasing abortion, increasing uh, homosexuality, all that. It's all listed in that 50 rules. Um, and yet we have ignored that even though it's right, right in our face, right in front of us the whole time. And I think that we continue to ignore the enemy. Uh, there was a years ago. I started teaching apologetics, and apologetics basically is the defense of Christianity using facts, science, logic, history, archaeology, and philosophy. Right, basically a rational faith. And in that, I would teach people about other religions. Like I would teach people about Islam. I teach people about um, Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism. I teach all the details what they believe and how you could detect they were wrong. And I actually had somebody come up to me and said, I don't think you should be doing this. I said, why? He said, I think you should just focus on teaching the gospel. And I said, why? They said, well, because if we know the gospel well enough, we can detect the fallacy. And I said, really? And, and then they gave me this story. They said, well, you know, uh, if you work at a bank and as a bank teller, they don't let you deal with counterfeit notes. They only want you to deal with real notes so that you know the real notes so well that when a counterfeit comes by, you'll know the difference. And I said, wow, where did you hear that from? He says, oh, well, that's commonly known. I said, well, well, let me find this, you know, me being the skeptic, I said, well, let me find this out. So I called up a friend of mine who was a bank teller, BOA at the time. He's since left was a long time ago. He was a kid at the time. And I said, Hey, is it true that when you become a bank teller, they don't let you deal with any counterfeit notes. They just want you to, Deal with the genuine notes so you know the difference. And he said, What? Are you kidding? I said, What do you mean? He said, Are you kidding? We have like two or three-day classes on counterfeit. They they have they show us all the counterfeits that they have. They show where they're wrong. They show you how you can tell the difference. i will say, There's a counterfeit and this is a real one. You can tell the difference here. He said, These are the problems that counterfeits have. This is why they can never replicate them ideally. Here's a real one. Here's how you tell the difference. He said, In fact, if you are unfortunate enough to have received a counterfeit no they will buy it from you because they're always looking for samples <laughs> to show their trainees so it's this idea that you should just focus on the good because that'll tell you what the bad is is nonsense the uh, the bible says test everything hold fast to that which is good it says understand all these things understand what the demons say understand what they say how they teach so over and over again, we're showed that there's been a bunch of lies being given to Christians, a bunch of lies being given to uh, to intellectuals saying, we need to go in, we need to become experts on everything they're doing, we need to understand everything we're doing, and we need to see why what we are doing is biblical and godly and moral, and then we can defeat them. Go ahead, I,
1: I would only add amen and amen, cause I had heard the same things Neil uh, spoken to me. you should just focus on the gospel. You should just, I said, no, I, I, I need to focus on it pointing out and being the watchman on the wall to point out the evil. And when evil's coming, I don't know where this mindset comes from. Well, well, I do know where it comes from. It comes from a certain laziness, if I could be so bold as to say, um, because I dealt I deal with a lot of clergy who used to say that when I would call them on the carpet on my radio show about what the church is not doing, and pastors, some pastors, I'm not going to say all, obviously, would get defensive. And what I would find out is that they had not done their homework. And thank God, many of them did capitulate and say, "Lonnie, you were right. I was wrong." Um, but we most certainly must understand what the enemy is doing. We must see the enemy what's coming. That's why we had watchmen on the the watchtowers, watching for the enemy and the tactics of the enemy and and where the enemy was approaching from. And we must continue to do that, especially in this day and age that we live now.
0: Yes, and I'd like to go back to the Old Testament. There would have been no need for um, Moses to send out the spies, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the purpose of sending out, out the spies? It's to go check out the land. Yes. See what's going on. You know, see what our tactic. Now, we know that he relied on Elohim, the creator. But still, he sent out the spies to yeah. see what's going on, to survey the land. Because they needed to know the good and the bad. Because it's not a place that they ever traveled before. So there's nothing, again, I don't think, you know, there's nothing wrong with the tactics. It is, you know, what's the context that you're using them in? And do you really seek out the wise counsel before you just pick them up and go? Right. So, you know, a 14 year old saying, this is how I'm going to handle a bully. And he takes up some tactic and goes out without, you know, getting some sound counsel. He could get himself beat up, <laughs> you know, um, and it's not that we're telling him that to defend himself from the bully, but there are ways to go about it. There's nothing wrong with protecting yourself, nothing wrong with knowing what your enemy is doing, um, but we, we just need to get, we need to put things in perspective and get, you know, good advice, good counsel on that.
1: I love that you used um, that particular analogy of the, of the bully um, the church has been bullied and, yeah. um, uh, and, and we act as if, uh, we don't have a dad that, that taught us how to deal with bullies. I was raised by a, a great father who taught me how to deal with bullies and he was right. And when I, when I didn't listen to him, I continued to suffer at the hands of the bully of the moment. Um, but when I finally listened and, and stepped out in faith and, Applied what my dear old dad taught me um i I prevailed and uh and the bullies went away they either went away or they became respectful of me, which was just as good and left me alone um but we must not be bullied anymore because we're being bullied into a corner, and I said this I think on a previous broadcast that we uh, I can end up very much like the church in China, you know you have and I'm talking about the uh uh the church has been driven underground in, in in china and then the church that's recognized in china is just it, it's a mechanism of the government in china so um yeah we must uh, we must stand up to the bullies great point regina
0: all right deal anything last comment you want to say before we close the room No. This is the end of our discussion today. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to hear your voice, so please consider joining us live on Clubhouse every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, which is 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, have a great day.